hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. October the 19th, 1856, with the Willie and Martin Handcart Company. Joseph B. Elder tells the following. As the advance party, meaning the rescue riders, reached the Willie Company at the Sixth Crossing, he said, as we looked ahead, lo and behold, we saw a wagon coming. Now, if you don't know the story of Martin and Willie, remember that these are approximately 1,000 to 1,200 handcart and wagon pioneers caught out in Wyoming when it began to snow, blizzards, and sub-zero temperatures, and they were exposed in that situation and had suffered greatly. Elder continues, we saw a wagon coming, and it was close. Such a shout as was raised in camp I never before heard. It came from the hearts of faithful saints who felt that their lives were in the hands of their God. But what made them shout? Was it merely the sight of a wagon? For we had met wagons before. No, he said. But it was that the Spirit of the Lord bore testimony that they were saviors coming to their relief. And it truly was. It was brothers Wheelock, Young, and two others. They brought us glorious news. They had been to Zion and were returning with many of their brethren with teams and provisions to help us through. I'm talking about the rescue riders who came to the aid, and the first company they met was the Willie Company, and how these people reacted to them. Two days later, the main body of the rescuers reached the Willie Company. Among them was Harvey Clough. Harvey Clough was one of the rescuers. He said this, When the people of the camp sighted us approaching, they set up such a shout as to echo through the hills. Arriving within the confines of this immigrant camp, a most thrilling and touching scene was enacted, melting to tears the stoutest hearts, young maidens, and feeble old ladies threw off all restraint and freely embraced their deliverers, expressing in a flow of kisses the gratitude which their tongues failed to utter. This was certainly the most timely arrival of a relief party recorded in history for the salvation of a people, 500 people with handcarts, a scanty supply of clothing, bedding, and a less supply of provisions upon the plains in snow, ten inches deep. The limited supply of food ordinarily would be a very small, and of this limited supply, scarcely a bite of substantial food was left in camp. Think of it, Klopp said. Think of it, ye mountaineers. Four hundred miles from any possible supply of provisions. You no longer wonder at the joy manifested by that 
perishing people when they saw salvation pull into their camp. Twenty odd wagons drawn by four animals to each, and each wagon loaded to the bows with vegetables, meat, flour, groceries, clothing for both sexes, and bedding and footwear. To give an idea of the critical condition of those people, I would say that our camp was pitched about 50 yards from the tents of the immigrants. And when each meal was over in our camp, and the bones and crumbs for our meals were thrown out on the snow, young men would gather them up, gnaw and suck them as long as they yielded any substance. End of quote. Give you some idea what it's like to be rescued from a freezing, starving condition. Now we move forward the date, go right over the present date, October 28, 1856. Daniel Jones was among the express riders who left the Willie Company and went further east and found the Martin Company camped at Red Buttes in Wyoming. This Daniel Jones was the one himself who was rescued by Latter-day Saints after being shot in Wyoming. Jones said, This company was in almost as bad as condition as the first one, meaning the Willie Company. They had nearly given up hope. Their provisions were about exhausted and many of them worn out and sick. When we rode in, there was a general rush to shake hands. I took no part in the ceremony. Many declared, he said, we were angels from heaven. I told them I thought we were better than angels for this occasion, as we were good strong men come to help them into the valley, and that our company and wagons loaded with provisions were not far away. I thought this the best consolation under the circumstances. Brother Young told the people to gather up and move on at once, as the only salvation was to travel a little every day. On that very same day, from the other side of the perspective, the young man John Bond of the Martin Company, who was there when Dan Jones and the others rode in, he said, All were anxious to see the relief party coming to relieve the distress of all that were and were bringing assistance to alleviate the loving saints in all directions, undaunted faith as the moving objects could be seen distinctly. A general cry rent the air, he said. Hurrah! Hurrah! Some of the voices choking with laughter and of tears. Careworn cheeks. They were so pleased to know that they were about to be saved and delivered from the fears of an ignominious death. When Sister Scott waved her shawl, we are saved, so loud that all in camp could hear and still repeating, it is, it is surely the relief party from Utah. Joseph A. Young, Daniel W. Jones, and Abel Gar came into camp with a small dun-colored mule packed with supplies when much rejoicing ensued through the camp with hurrahs, hurrahs, again and again, as the broken-hearted mothers ran clasping their emaciated arms around the necks of the relief party, kissing them time and time again, and as do rush up in groups to welcome the brethren, fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters fall on each other's necks, the tears 
falling from their eyes in profusion, being so overjoyed to think that all were to soon have relief and care for the living, sick, and bury the dead with a decent burial as they go to their silent tombs. And then Brother Bond concludes, God bless Brigham Young and the parties sent to help all to the valleys over the snow-cloud Rocky Mountains was heard all over the camp. I wonder if we can appreciate what it means to be saved, to be rescued. Cyrus Wheelock was among those rescuers. After he had found the Martin Company, one night he knelt in prayer with the company to offer, as it were, a company prayer. He had just returned from a three-year mission to the British Isles, during which period Wheelock had become greatly attached to scores of people in the Martin Company, and witnesses said he offered a very remarkable prayer. Josiah Rogerson records, His heart and soul was filled with sorrow at our condition, as we had several in our camp yet that had to be, certain extent, lost their minds since crossing the North Platte River. At least they had become like children. Raising his hands to heaven, meaning Wheelock, raising his hands to heaven in a very impressive and appealing manner, his voice, this is a tough, hardened frontiersman. His voice nearly stifled with emotion and grief. He prayed to the Father that if for any fault or weakness that he might have done or committed in his life and ministry, the progress of the members of our company that he loved dearer than his own life was impeded, that if through anything he had done or left undone, he had caused or helped to cause or bring about our present plight, Rogerson said, that God would instantly remove him out of the way by death and let the company go on without further loss to the valleys of the mountains. It was touching and deep in its humility, and this brief digest will no doubt refresh the memories and reproduce the scene in that snowbound camp for many of our surviving comrades. My dear friends, they were in the worst possible mortal plight, freezing and starving, dying by scores by the day, had they not had rescuers come out from these very valleys where we are here with food, clothing, and supplies, there would have been twelve to fifteen hundred people died on the plains found the next spring frozen solid. It would have made, as I've said before, the Donner Party disaster look almost like nothing. But they were rescued. They were saved. They were carried on to the valley, not all, but saving many of their lives. They literally, those rescuers, were literally temporal saviors on Mount Zion. I wonder if we can appreciate what the Savior has done and will yet do for us. And to that end, 
I proceed to talk about the Savior. My experiences, I am convinced that almost anyone can change. The purpose of this life is to change. It's to choose what we want, what we love, what we'll do, where our heart is. The sacrifice of the Savior ensured that we can change. And to me, no character in the scriptures exemplifies change more than the Apostle Peter. Three times on the night of the Savior's betrayal, Peter denied him. And that, after publicly proclaiming boldly and brashly that he would never forsake him. The record says that after that third denial, the cock crowed and Peter went out and wept bitterly. I can only imagine the depth of Peter's pain and guilt at what he had done. Surely, it must have been one of the lowest points of Peter's life. I've often wondered what filled his thoughts that night, especially during that three days' time when Jesus was in the tomb. Could it have been something like this? There's no hope for me now. I can never be forgiven. My sin is too great. I've sinned too much. How could he ever love me again? Well, if the story of Peter's life had ended on the night of the crucifixion, it would have been a tragedy tantamount to Judas. But it didn't. On the day of the resurrection, Peter was privileged with a personal visit from the risen Lord, face to face, one on one. And as you know, Peter was forgiven and once more encircled in the arms of the Savior's love. I believe that night was so sacred to Peter that at least according to the record extent now, it's not been recorded and we don't know what happened in that personal interview. But suffice it to say, Peter's shoulders were squared, the Lord embraced him and sent him to work. Whatever happened that night, it changed Peter. That change is dramatically illustrated by an event that occurred just two months later. Late one afternoon, Peter and John walked into the temple through the gate beautiful. As they passed through the gate, a man, crippled from birth, begged alms of them. Look on us, Peter commanded. The man looked at them, expecting to receive something of them, but Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then Peter reached down and lifted the man to stand on feet that had never borne weight, walking and leaping, and praising God, the healed man entered the temple rejoicing. Under the refining hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter's denial became the catalyst for his change. Eventually, he became like the master himself, the man he worshipped, a man of miracles. Eventually, Peter even became a martyr. I believe that Peter is a pattern for all those who want to 
change. Whether we are now in the rock bottom of bitter tears and regret for past mistakes, or like so many of us, simply stranded on a plateau of complacency, when invited, the Savior will come and will take us in hand and encircle us in the arms of his love. And the effect, the effect, we will be changed, better, stronger, wiser. We will never be the same again. I have come to the conclusion that life is hard. And you know what? Parenting is very hard. Children don't come with instruction books, but they sure do come with some of the most perplexing problems imaginable. Therefore, I believe that to conscientiously raise a child or a grandchild to maturity is to unknowingly and inevitably raise oneself closer to God just by being a mom, a good mom, and a good dad, and a good grandpa or grandma. There is something divine about that. While the Savior was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, his other apostles, as you recall, were in the valley below waiting for him. A man came seeking Jesus who had a son possessed of an evil spirit. Now, since the master was not present, at the father's request, the disciples attempted to cast out the foul spirit. But because of their lack of faith, they failed. Now picture this. When Jesus came on the scene, everyone ran to him. Perhaps it was because his face still shone from the transfiguration of the night before. But as Jesus comes on the scene, he asks that that son, the afflicted son, be brought to him, whereupon the evil spirit in the young man threw him to the ground, and he began to wallow and foam and thrash. Jesus asked the man, how long has he been like this? The father replied, since he was a child. And then the father continued, and many times the evil spirit has tried to destroy him. Then pitifully, and I mean pitifully, the father pled, but if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I've always been intrigued by that story. I was so many times a desperate father. Now I'm, I'm just a desperate grandpa. Did this man have faith? Well, yes. He had enough faith to come to the Savior and ask for help. But it's obvious from what he says that he doesn't have enough faith to have complete confidence in the Master's power. He lacks faith, or perhaps he lacks understanding, or maybe both. Did the Savior cast him out and throw him aside and says, I'm sorry, I can't help you? No. The Master discerned the man's heart and his need, and he said, if thou canst believe, all 
things are possible to him that believeth. And immediately the father cried out with desperate tears, what I consider to be the prayer of a parent for the ages. He said, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. In other words, this father is saying, Lord, I need thy help. I have no place left to go. I have faith you can help me, but it's not enough. I can't move mountains to save my son. Please give me more faith. The Savior heard that prayer and he heard that plea. And he healed that son and restored him whole to his father. I can only imagine that father's rejoicing at having his son returned whole. It is my conviction that it's no different now. Think about it. Is there any prayer a loving father would be more inclined to hear and answer than that of a desperate, pleading parent? Parents, anyone who's listening, we don't need to go this alone. Not the raising of our children. Not the effort to become better disciples. Not the effort to be good missionaries. We are not in this alone. In this world today, we can't afford to go it alone. The world is stronger in evil and tougher in evil than it's ever been. And I promise you, anyone who goes it alone will get whooped. And just because things are difficult, it does not mean that God has relinquished his fatherhood. Just because he's granted us custodial care for our children doesn't mean that his love for them and his ability to help them is set aside. He loved them before we did. He's on our side. It has been aptly said that one cannot raise heaven's child without heaven's help. One cannot become a true disciple of Christ without the rescuing help of the Savior and his ability to make us equal to the moment. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.